My name is Judy. I'm a compulsive overeater. Are we ready for another couple hours of wonderfulness and marvelousness? All right. Thank you. Uh, Before we get going, I'd like to have someone come up and read an excerpt from As Bill Sees It, page 57. Excuse me. I'd like to have Sharon come up and read. Good morning. All right. My name is Sharon, and I'm a compulsive overeater. All righty. Better than gold. As newcomers, many of us have indulged in spiritual intoxication. Like a gaunt prospector, belt drawn in over the last ounce of food, we saw our pick strike gold. Joy at our release from a lifetime of frustration knew no bounds. The newcomer feels he has struck something better than gold. He may not see at once that he has barely scratched a limitless load, which will pay dividends only if he mines it for the rest of his life and insists on giving away the entire product. Thank you, Sharon. Uh, I think all the silent auction stuff has been gone, um, so we don't have to do that. 50-50, we don't have an account right now, but I hope you've got your tickets. You'll have probably one more chance to to buy some. We're headed for over $2,000 if we haven't reached that already for the 50-50. So your share would be $1,000, which is nothing to sniff at. Okay, who's starting, you or Michelle? Okay, I'd like to introduce Carmen, who will introduce our closing speakers. Where's my script? (laughs) I'll give it back to you. This is really off the cuff. My name is Carmen, and I'm a compulsive overeater. Before we introduce our speakers, we would like to remind you that all speakers share their own experience, strength, and hope. They do not speak for the convention, Region 2, or Overeaters Anonymous as a whole, but they do speak from their heart, and they do give us their experience, strength, and hope. And um, I'm very proud and, and very pleased to introduce our very first speaker of the morning, and that would be Paul from San Francisco. Let's give him a hand. Hi, I'm Paul. I'm a compulsive overeater. Hi, Paul. Yeah, I'd like to thank uh, the committee. Louder? I'd like to thank the committee uh, and whoever thought of asking me to speak. Um, It's a great honor. I remember when I I first came in. (laughs) Okay. Yes, okay, so when I first came in, you know, um, and I, I saw long-timers, I, I, I had the desire instantly, of course, to, to have the recovery that uh, some of the people I saw when I came in had, and, um, and it's really like, um, 
in the Jewish tradition is a hundred blessings a day you're supposed to say if you're an observant Jew. And they all start the same. They start, blessed are you, our Lord, our God, King of the universe, who? And, 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 but they're in Hebrew, but I translated. And, um, and so one of them would be who allowed me to live to this time, you know, who brought me to this season. You know, and I thought of this would be a time that if I was an observant Jew that I would be saying I would be uh, recognizing the moment for myself. And I did. I said, thank you. And, um, you know, that ties into the, the nuggets of recovery here because, um, uh, yeah, let me get, let me start. I'll, I'll qualify. I, I came in on August 5th, 1983. Um, and this the abstinence I have is from... May 7th, 1986. So uh, you can do the numbers. Uh, my top weight was 318 pounds, and I'm keeping 115 off for a long period of time here. Um, you have to bear with me. I love this, but I get nervous. And then once I get going, I... I I'm happy. <laughs> but, um, you know, uh, I was, uh, I've been around for a long time, and I've spoken a lot of times, and I've, uh, I know a lot of people here, or they know me. And um, yesterday, you know, I was here early in the morning, and it's a great convention, a lot of good stuff going on. I was going to different meetings and hearing different people share, as well as the speakers, and uh, many people smiled at me when I walked by, you know, people that I knew I knew. And a lot of people stopped and they would say uh, kind things about what I had to say at other occasions or where I spoke in front of their group. And I kept getting more and more uneasy and uh, it felt uncomfortable. And uh, by the time 7 o'clock in the evening came, I was exhausted. And uh, I went up to my room. And um, I know that when I get out of sorts, it's time to really look at what's going on. And because, I mean, what, what kind of a problem is this, right? I mean, people are, people are saying, hi, I like, yeah, thanks for what you're doing. And, and um, people, what I have to say seems to be of worth to people. That wasn't my experience when I was a kid. When I was growing up, I didn't have a voice or a vote in my house. You know, what I had to say was always a problem. And so anyway, I'm, I'm sitting up there uh, meditating on this, and, uh, and it gets back to uh, one of my bottom line traits is that I'm unlovable. You know, I grew up in a house that if I didn't do what I was supposed to do, then it wasn't, it wasn't acceptable. And... And I, I got the sense that I wasn't, you know, my parents really thought that I was doing great, but their way of telling me how I was doing great was to show me what I didn't do right. And because they wanted me to just keep on doing more and more, better and better. And I got this sense that I, whatever I did wasn't enough and that, I'm, yeah, I was unlovable. And then as I saw that I have first cousins that I didn't know their name, didn't know where they lived, I saw that my family... I thought my kernel of a family was unlovable. And, um, and growing up as a Jew, 
I got the sense that the world doesn't accept people for being Jewish and that the world thinks I'm unlovable. You know, there's nothing I can do to be accepted or loved by the world. And so, um, whoo, you know, I mean, no wonder I was tired. And, um, <laughs> you know, I came into a program in Madrid, Spain. I was working overseas. I ran a small office in a large corporation. I hired, I, we were estimating construction costs. And uh, I hired an electrician. Um, because I needed one. I could do all the construction costs except electrical. I didn't like electrical estimating. And um, I hired this guy, and um, I was two years, eight months into my uh, tour, and my family had just gone home um, to set up for the school year. You know, this is August. They, they were setting up for the school year coming up. And um, after a, a week of working with him, I asked him what kind of a spiritual path he was following. Oh, i got to backtrack. Um, okay, so I, I knew my family was whacked. I knew I was whacked. That's the way I look at it. You know, I mean, yeah, I, that there was something wrong. There was something wrong. It, it, something was wrong with my life. And I studied my religion for 10 years before I came into program. And I studied three or four nights with different rabbis just trying to find the truth of the universe because I thought the truth of the universe was what I needed to fix my problem. You know, I mean, I knew I was, uh, I, kn I knew I was heavy, but I, um, <laughs> but I, my problem was beyond weight. And um, came into program, I was 265. Uh, okay, so this guy has what I want. I ask him what kind of a spiritual path he's following me, uh, following, he says he's following the 12 steps and 12 traditions of Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, to this day, I'm grateful that uh, someone who I knew for about a week, a week and a half, would tell me that he's a recovering alcoholic. You know, I would never have told my boss I was a recovering alcoholic. And, uh, <laughs> holy shit. And, um, and he gives me a big book and a 12 and 12, takes me through the steps around drugs and alcohol. His wife, who was a psych nurse from a previously, uh, a battered woman from a previous alcoholic marriage, um, tells me what it's like to be a battered woman. Um, he tells me what it's like to be an alcoholic, to uh, lose a family, to, be, uh, to get DUIs, to be in jail, to be in mental institutions. And I got a sense that Something powerful went on for this guy. You know, I mean, I could, I could hear his, I could see the change in his life. And, um, and so I, you know, I was, I was desperate. I, I was desperate. And, uh, you know, I was trying to fix myself and fix my family. This seemed like a, a reasonable thing. And he started taking me through the steps. Um, Took me through the steps. When I came to steps two and three, I really didn't, uh, whew, had a hard time with that. And so I, you know, I just turned step three into a decision. To me, the second step is the toughest step of all because I um, came to believe that a power greater than myself could restore me to sanity. I really didn't believe that until it happened for me. I knew that it could happen for other people because I knew it happened for him. But I didn't think it was going to happen for me. And... Um, so I, I sort of skipped it. The third step was easier. Uh, 
make a decision to turn our lives and will over, well, I was just going to work the rest of the steps. That was my decision. And um, he taught me an awful lot, you know. He taught me an awful lot. And most of them are, you know, everything I learned in program is really what's worth more than gold. You know, when I came into program, I mean, I had a good job. I got a job in Spain, right? I was running my side of the shop. I, I was working with people who were my age, maybe 35, who were given the chance to be at the next level from where they were working in their organizations before. So I was, I was given the chance to be one step up. They were all with that opportunity. And the excitement of being there with people who were good at what they were doing it was just exciting. I had a great job, right? I had two kids. I had a wife. I had a car. I had two cars. A house. I mean, I had everything I wanted. Uh, everything I was supposed to get. Everything I was supposed to do. And I, my life was miserable. I was miserable. And so I understand recovery is greater than gold because I had gold. And I didn't have... Um, any peace around it, you know? Not, but there's also an expression in uh, without bread, there's no Torah, right? So there's no spirituality if you can't have a, a, a living, you know? If, you're, if you don't have food to eat, then you're not going to be thinking spiritual things. So, you know, money's important, but it's, it's, it's um, necessary, but it's not sufficient. Ah, so one of the first things he told me was that you're going to have to let go of the $6 million. And uh, you're going to have to learn how to help somebody. And, uh, you know, and I, I didn't get those two concepts, you know. I, I said, you mean I should, when I see an old lady crossing the street, I should help her cross? What are you talking about, you know? And, uh, <laughs> and um letting go of the $6 million, you know, I, I was really, really angry. I'm Jewish. I'm working in Madrid. I would ride the trains. I would picture these were the trains that the Jews were taken to the camps on. So I'm, and then he's telling me that I should turn my life and my will over to the care of God. Some of the people that burnt in smoke were commentaries I've I read on, on, on spiritual matters. These people were much more spiritual than me. They deserve to live more, I thought, than I do. And they went up in smoke. And if that was God's will for them, I really didn't want to know what God's will for me was, you know? <laughs> Are you kidding me? So, I mean, I had, a, I had a, my own cross to bear when I came here, you know? And um, I, was, I was just really angry. Got to let go of the six million, you know? So, so, I'm, so here I am. I'm, I'm here on Saturday. People are saying hi. Thanks, thanks, thanks. And I'm feeling uncomfortable. And I go up to my room, and it's all this root of the six. You know, I'm, un, I'm unlovable. They're going to come and get me. They're going to kill me. Oh, sorry. Yeah, I went up to my room after. after uh, <laughs> I went up to the room trying to deal with the feelings of people uh, showing me acceptance and love, you know, and, um, and having the fears that come up with 
just exposing myself to people or just not exposing, but, but just being who I am, showing up, be who I am, which I think is uh, another nugget of recovery, but I think it's what recovery is about. It's being able to show up and be who you are. And I didn't know who I was until I came into program. It wasn't until I did the steps I was willing to look at who I am and see if it would be all right, see if I could survive that. But it all starts with abstinence. For me, everything is... um, Abstinence is priming the spiritual pump. You got to work. If if I'm going to work a spiritual program, I got to work it against something. And uh, the thing that was bothering me the most was was the way I ate. I mean, I could tell you some stories, but one of the stories in Spain, uh, it's just sometimes I'd go to England. I had business all over Europe, right? So I'd go to England. I could buy a pair of pants in England but I couldn't buy a pair of pants that fit me in Spain. You know what it's like when you can't buy, when you're walking around bigger than everybody else in the country? I mean, Jesus, you know, it's like, um, excuse me. And it's, um, (laughs) (laughs) so, um, yeah, so, um, I'd, I'd come from my house in Spain. I'd have had a big breakfast. I'd come to work, and I'd grab this, uh, they call them uh, Spanish tortillas. They're a uh, picture of pie made out of egg and uh, potatoes and onions and a lot of olive oil. And then when you touch it, it's like, oh, what are you going to do with that, right? Okay, and, and they usually they'll cut them into 16 slices and put them, on a little piece of bread or something and serve it um, with a cup of uh, coffee at a, a store. And so I buy three of these pies. This is after breakfast, and this is before my lunch, which would be down at, uh, uh, they eat big lunches in Spain. And uh, <laughs> so I'd have these pies, and I'd stick them in my desk drawer, and they they come in tin foil, so you open it up, and I, I don't have time for a knife, so I'd break off a piece, and I'd be eating it. I'm a professional man here, right? I'm dressed in a jacket and tie, and I'm wearing my polyester pants. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, that was back in those days, you know. And, uh, and I, I don't have time. You know, someone comes in to the office. I'd have to finish chewing that bite and uh, wiping my hands on my pants. You know, um, I mean, it's, I couldn't help it, you know. It's just that's, and then I'd have to uh, be there for the rest of the day. It's, um, I did things that were um, really humiliating, you know. It was really a, a, a problem. So abstinence to me is, uh, you know, it's really, I don't want to go back to those kinds of behaviors. I was told in the beginning that if I use anything to change my mood, I'm not clean and sober. He said if I'm using drugs, alcohol, spending, gambling, sex, work, or eating. I don't remember hearing him say eating. (laughs) No, you're laughing. I'm not sure he said it until it was time for me to rotate home. And then he suggested that I go to 90 Overeaters Anonymous meetings in 90 days. And, um, you know, I don't... 
Yeah, I was only 265 at the time, you know. And, um, but I, I remembered that, you know, abs- he, he wouldn't take up any, uh, you know, if there was mouthwash that had alcohol, he wouldn't, he wouldn't take it. And he was really picky about his substance. I come to Overeaters Anonymous, and uh, I had that same kind of an idea, that the substance, there's a physical component to th- certain foods. I don't know what they are for you, but I know what they are for me. And the foods that trigger me, I don't eat, because I can't eat just three, you know? I can't stop at the third one. I can stop if I don't eat the first one, but I can't stop if I've eaten the first one or the second one. And then my mind gets into it, and I'll rationalize, and I'll, I'll eat. It doesn't matter how many years I got here. I know that if I take in and start a physical craving, there isn't a spiritual remedy. That's the equivalent of, like, if I, I don't like heights. So if I was on a 20-story building and I'm close to the edge, let's see, I can get close enough so I can fall, and then I can pray to God that I don't die, right? (laughs) Or I can pray to God that I don't get too close to the edge. Ooh, there's a thought, right? And um, so, um, so I was told when I came to meetings, you know, one of, you know, just the fellowship, everything about Overeaters Anonymous is, uh, is, is um, something of value, or adds something of value. You know, I remember when I was sitting in meetings and people would say, I'm going home for the holidays and I'm afraid. I said, what? Yeah, I'm going home for the holidays and I'm afraid. What do you, you know, and they would talk about, well, they got to make sure they got meetings. They got a car so they can get to the meetings. They bring their literature. They, uh, they got to make sure that they get their food into their house. They got a plan. And I said, wow, you know, wow. You know how long it would have taken me to figure out that I have a problem when I go home? I don't know how many years it would have taken me to figure that out on my own. <laughs> you know, but the idea that there is a large group of people all working on my problem. What a, what a great thing, you know? And if I pay attention to people who have what I want and I'm willing to go to any length to get it, then I'm going to be okay, you know? So, uh, you know, being morbidly obese, I used to go to the Century Meeting was my home meeting, and uh, I took a survey of the guys who had what I wanted. Um, they were people who had at least 100 pounds off for 10 years or more. And I asked them how they ate. And... Um, they, all, they each told me, you know, you know, I've done a lot of those, that kind of surveys. You know, if I didn't eat everything of what everybody doesn't eat, all I'd be left with is water, you know. <laughs> <laughs> because some people don't eat this and some people don't eat that, but the people who had long-term weight loss of 100 pounds or more seemed to eat in the same way. And that's the way that I, I modeled my uh, abstinence over. I've, I've had a food plan. It's moved for many different reasons. Um, as I could, everything is about ele- you know. It's about elevating everything to a level of holiness. That's basically what my religion would say. You got to elevate your behaviors to a level of holiness. So here I was, morbidly obese, eating like an animal, and now I'm gonna try and define abstinence. Well. I have to raise my eating to a level of holiness if I want something 
if I want to get real recovery. I, for me, for me, for me. And um, so for me, eating wasn't just to be at a weight that was uh, reasonable or that my doctor thought that was what we should shoot for. To me, eating was... Um, I had to elevate it somehow. I said, no, you know, I, I have to say a prayer before I eat. I have to have a prayer, ooh, after I eat. Um, my first prayer around food was to help me not eat like an animal. And um, and that works, you know. Okay, so i got to get to the real kernel. The real stuff is in the steps, and it's asking God for help. I wasn't willing to ask God for help. I only got ten minutes, so I'm going to go... <laughs> I wasn't willing to ask God for help because um, I didn't trust God. I didn't trust God. But when I got to be 318 pounds, I realized that my best effort after two years and eight months in this program, and by the way, I averaged a meeting a day for the first six, eight years, right? I mean, it's not like I was, I mean, I I pictured myself like I was a rat in a toilet bowl and it was being flushed. (laughs) You know? I was told it was an action program, you know, <laughs> and that if I wanted to get better, I had a, you know, and I, I needed a lot of help. So, uh, so I, I came to understand, you know, I came in at 265. I had this guy with 25 years of recovery. I had my great intellect, the big book, the 12 and 12, and I, I got from 265 to 318. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I, I went up and down in between. I mean, I lost 40, 50 pounds, and then I'd work on my four-step, and I'd take a dive. and So my sponsor told me I should ask God to, for help to share at a meeting, even though I like to talk a lot. And um, at the time, I didn't. I didn't mind talking to him. I would tell him everything because I knew he could read my mind anyway. And, um, but I didn't want to share at a meeting. So he told me, you know, you should share at meetings. And so I uh, went back to my apartment. I laid in my bed. I cried. I said, if you're up there, my sponsor says I should share at a meeting. You know, So OA was bigger when I came in. And uh, the meeting I shared, it was 150 people at Old French hospital and um, microphone in the DS, you know, and uh, so, and they called on me and I waddled up and I took the microphone and bang and a hi, I'm Paul, I'm a compulsive overeater and I don't like to talk in front of people. Boom, put the thing back <laughs> and I waddled back and and everybody clapped. And I felt better. And, uh, <laughs> and that's why we ask God for help is because we feel better afterwards if we take an action that um, seems fearful to us. And so I would do these. I would only let God into my life around the food. And then character defects, you know, what do they say? It's like putting a miracle grow on your character defects. So I got really angry. I got really fearful. Lots of things came up. You know, I, I always wished that I, I was worried about being a parent. I, I, was, um, I didn't want to parent the way my 
parented me, but I could see myself doing things that I wasn't really thrilled about. And uh, I had to do the opposite of what I thought of. I had to do, I had to come up with some new plan. I asked God for help around parenting. I didn't know what was the right way to do, but I knew that I didn't know who my father was. My father, I, I didn't know who my, I know who, I could point him out, but I mean, uh, you know, <laughs> as far as knowing what was in his head, <laughs> no way, you know. So I, I told my kids that, um, that I was going to tell them what I was thinking and feeling, even if they thought I was crazy. And that um, because I didn't know what my, who my father was, even though they, they just never talked to me, my parents, about anything real. And, um, you know, what it's like to be afraid. Or, um, so uh, I got a big reward in parenting. Um, uh, I could go into a couple of stories. One, one of them was... Uh, no, I don't have time. And... Um, <laughs> You know, when you got 30 years, almost 30 years in, uh, it's 30 minutes is uh, not a big time frame. Okay, so I let God into my life around parenting. I had, to, I had to be uncomfortable with the feelings of trying to parent without having role models for parents. And looking at what I was doing and trying to analyze if it was all right, if it wasn't all right, and... And to deal with the feeling, you know, my, one of my big things is I'm not doing it good enough, you know. It doesn't matter what I'm doing. It's not good enough. And uh, I had to deal with that feeling as it would come up. So I got to go, wait, I'm divorced. I'm, I'm looking to date. I was told, uh, you know, so I knew lust comes up, right? Yeah, one reason I could be heavy is because I could be righteous, self-righteous with all my... Uh, Hey, I didn't fool around, you know. Yeah, no wonder. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Who the hell would fool around with me, you know? And uh, But when I got thin, then I, I had to look at, um, okay, what's my dating life going to be like, you know? And, uh, and I know they have uh, 12-step programs for uh, people who go down that rabbit hole, and uh, I had a choice. And so I invited God into my dating life, my romantic life. And I heard someone speak, a speaker from L.A., uh, come up and say, uh, It isn't enough to know what your character defects are. You have to practice the spiritual opposite of them. And so for him, the opposite of lust was purity of intent. And so, um, and he described his purity of intent that didn't make sense to me, but I had to go home and write about it because I was now at, I was in a group, five minutes, I was in a group uh, writing and reading 10 steps to each other. I called it class of 86. You know, we were, uh, there were a group of us who wanted to get better. The feelings were coming up. We had a commitment to abstinence that we would not eat no matter what. And I, I mean, not eat off of our food plan. And, um, and I had a desk job and people would be calling me all day, reading their 10 steps to me. And uh, one of these people is now my wife. And, um, So she was my best friend in program. I didn't go to a lot of meetings with her, but I, I talked to her every day on the phone. And I talked to her about real things, things that were what were, we were afraid of. And we would, she was my best friend. So, and 
so there is uh, physical types of women. So when I was a young kid, you know, Sophia Loren and Shirley MacLaine. Opposite, opposites, both beautiful women, but Sophia Loren was more my type, right? If I had a children. <laughs> What's so funny? And, uh, so, but my wife is more the Shirley MacLaine person, you know? And, um, but one day, I started to get attracted to her. I mean, I was attracted to her spiritually. She had such a strong desire to be uh, well. And um, so I was attracted to her. So I, I um, so my purity of intent was that I had to realize, I called her Batya. That's a common Hebrew name. It means daughter of God. And there's a name for God in Hebrew, Makom, which means place. And what, you get, what I get from that is that it doesn't matter what place I'm in, God's here. And so if I can remember truly that God's present, oh, I'll just wrap this right up, um, <laughs> that God is present and I want to put my hand on God's daughter in front of God himself, then that's purity of intent. And it went pretty slowly, but, um, <laughs> but it was probably one of the biggest nuggets of recovery I ever got was inviting God into my life around um, my romantic relationships. I got a million other things, but uh, my time's up, and I appreciate the opportunity to share. Thank you. Thank you, Paul. Um, I can't believe you couldn't reach the microphone. Um, anyway, um, I'm Michelle, compulsive reader. <laughs> Is this taped? I'm a slut for that. Anyway, <laughs> sorry, Mom. Anyway, um, I have the honor of introducing somebody um, who I actually only see a few times a year and has meant a lot to my program. Um, and then this weekend, um, I can't express the gratitude that I have for her. Yesterday she kept walking up to me and hugging me and telling me she loves me and that I look terrible. Um, anyway, today she, she, all I got was an eye roll. So um, I'm, I, it's just my pleasure to introduce our closing speaker, Julie from San Leandro. Hi, my name's Julie. I'm a compulsive overeater. And uh, actually, if it were, um, uh, you know, sorry to all the guys in the audience, I'm a crier. Um, But I didn't used to be. Uh, Hormones. You think it's hard to go without sugar? Try going without estrogen, buddy. (laughs) But I always considered... I always considered that, you know, the person you hear last or in that place would be the person with the most um, time and wisdom, and I think Paul should be standing up here, not me. Um, And I mean that sincerely. Um, But they want to go boy, girl, boy, girl, so here we are, okay? (laughs) And I'm not joking, you know, in the committee's ultimate wisdom. So I want to say thank you to the committee uh, for having me and also to say I've been here less than 72 hours. And I have managed to uh, 
do at least one resentment worth an amends. So I want to apologize to the people who were picking folks this morning at breakfast. Our table was close to last. And all I can say is that it didn't matter how much time we had in the program, we were all using the F word. And uh, I was waving $20 bills and nobody was coming over. Uh, so I guess you could say the committee does have integrity. But, um, but it was tough. It was tough. I mean, you know, everybody would come by us smiling with their plate full of food. And I'm like going, you know, and then the lady was so kind. She said, well, my table hasn't eaten either. And I said, I really don't give a shit. <laughs> yes, the spiritual Sunday speaker. Okay. Um, so I'm going to hand my pictures around. Please bring them up here, even if. Not it's you know just at the end of the thing because I really don't want to do this again. Okay, so um, who's the timer? So I keep an eye. Yeah, thank you. Um, I also want you to know, truth in advertising, I was not the first choice. Um, so so I came in here with a lot of self-esteem and. Um, <laughs> But that's all right, you know. It's an, it's, it truly is an honor. I want to say it's an honor. It definitely is a privilege. But to be frank with you, I've never worked at anything so hard in my bleeding life and been so less responsible for the success. Truly, you know. It's like it's embarrassing when normal people say, you have so much willpower. And I just think... You're so stupid. <laughs> you have no idea who who is here. I mean, it's like the first time my boss handed me the keys to the to the job, I was like, "You have just handed matches to a pyromaniac." I mean, cuz I have other problems besides compulsive overeating, like theft. Okay. So, I'm going to because I think the most valuable thing we have to say here is uh, our stories. I'm going to tell you mine, and the only thing I ask is that <laughs> the people who have heard my story many times, please, you can move your lips while I'm talking, as you know, going along. Just try not to say it out loud, you know. <laughs> That's all I ask. Um, so, anyway, what did it, I got to try and say this? Oh, wait, who was the timer again? Yeah, thank you. Okay. What it used to be like, what happened, and what it's like now. Oh, yeah, and I should mention the world gold. Okay, that's out of the way. Um, <laughs> The thing is, is I do have gold, and it's in my back molar, okay? <laughs> but I couldn't agree. I know we're not supposed to crosstalk, but I am. I couldn't agree with Paul on so many, many things he talked about, and especially that it's like to even compare this to gold is silly because this is so much, I mean, this is... This is life itself. And I don't, and I mean a life not being, over and over I read in the big book, the thing that always sticks out to me, besides the part about using chocolate as a quick energy value in the night, <laughs> is um, the part that really sticks out to me is it says, 
self-constructed prisons over and over again. I thought, oh my God, if that doesn't speak to ovaries and amas, I don't know what does. A lot of people start out with, they say their numbers. I'm going to say mine because um, if you're like me, you may be, you're judgmental. And, um, and I'm judging you by what you look like, sound like, talk like. And this is why I learned a long time ago to shut my eyes when someone was talking. Just so I'm hearing the message, not the messenger. Okay? So that really helps me a lot. Um, I've been coming to Overeaters Anonymous now uh, about 30 years. I started in um, a Monday in January. That's very significant. And I currently have 27 years of abstinence. And my top weight in this program was about 200 pounds, and my bottom weight has been 98 pounds. Um, so I understand the whole spectrum, or have lived, I should say, not understand, lived the spectrum of anorexia, bulimia, and compulsive overeating. I couldn't throw up. I tried really hard. You know, someone was mentioning a tool we don't often mention, and I wanted to say throwing up. No, that wasn't the tool. So what did it used to be like? Okay, briefly. I didn't, I, you know, people say I came out the shoot a compulsive overeater. I believe that too. I mean, I was a fat baby. I've got pictures. I mean, I was an obese baby, okay? And um, my pediatrician bawled my mom out for it. She said, well, she just likes to eat, okay? So that was true, and I was always a on the heavy side kid, um, and I would never be in, a, you know, all the neighborhood kids stay together and they do a race. I would never do it. I would always be the starter. I'm the starter. Go. <laughs> <laughs> Let somebody else be humiliated by being last. So, um, but I, I agree. I totally identify with everybody else. I have always felt, maybe you haven't, like a square peg in a round hole. I have always felt, even on the playground, like Everybody got the memo but me. People, you know, I mean, I just never quite seemed could get it together. And, uh, you know, I mean, I did okay and stuff in school, and that's because of fear, you know. Um, and if you want want something funny, look at your elementary school report card. Look at the comments on your elementary school report card. They'll be on your tombstone. <laughs> Julie is serious, too serious. <laughs> Talk, yeah. Okay, so I've been, I, I remember the day they came out with Reese's peanut butter cups, and I'm not kidding you. I remember how many there were. I remember what room I was in, how old I was, and I didn't know that that would become a love affair of over 20 years. You know, so... I mean, even our dog had diabetes, okay? We all had ice cream after dinner. The only thing in our refrigerator that went bad was lettuce, and our, our uh, garbage disposal was literally in pristine condition. I mean, from the time the vets came back from World War II till the time I get into OA, we did not have a new garbage disposal. We're talking over 30 years, okay? That thing worked. Because the only thing went down it was... Well, basically nothing, you know. There were no leftovers. We had Tupperware, but who used it? I mean, really. Um, and I learned how to make things as a kid, 
And I learned later how to make stuff when nobody was home because, you know, I'd come home, my parents would both be at work, and I would learn how to make stuff. I would steal stuff. I learned the, the, the art of making seven cookies look like the dozen that it used to be before I got there. You know, you artfully arrange them on the plate. <laughs> so when did I go from being a, a, perhaps a, a, a problem eater? to a compulsive overeater. I mean, I was a problem here because every nurse at school every year when they weighed us in said, honey, don't you think you should lose some weight? And I felt, I wanted to say, what do you mean? Everybody I know eats like this. You know, what's, So um, anyway, I got a real clear message in junior high that I was fat and fat was bad. Um, I put on a lot of weight over summer. I heard one of our speakers say they had a brief shining moment in their life when they could eat anything they want and not gain weight. I actually had that moment for two months. Had I known then that that was the only time I was going to get that, I would have done it a lot differently. <laughs> I would have eaten a hell lot more. So anyway, I started putting on weight, and I couldn't fit into any of my school clothes, and my mother dragged me on the scale, and I learned how to run away from home without running away from home. I just left in my mind. So while she's there saying things to me, I'm there feeling completely shamed and humiliated, thinking, nobody's going to do this to me again. I will put myself on a diet. I will show you. And that's what I did. My diets were starve all day and eat peanut butter at night. My diets were uh, tuna fish and bubble gum. Those were my diets, but they worked. Anything works if you can stick with it a little bit, and I could for a little while, and then I would always gain more weight. And this really became apparent in high school that every time I lost weight, I gained it back and then some. Because every time I was on a diet, I don't know about you, but I was thinking about everything I was going to eat when I got off that damn diet. And uh, the periods of dieting in college, I noticed, were getting smaller and smaller, and the periods of gaining weight were getting longer and longer. And I remember I'm from Southern California, and we would go to the beach every summer, and I would see these bikini-clad things wandering about. And I'm in cutoffs because I'm too embarrassed to show my body in a uh, bikini. And while I'm eating my corn dog fries and a Coke from the snack bar, I'm thinking, next year, it's going to be different. And it was. I weighed more. <laughs> so, you know, and I'm with a guy at that time. I'm 17 years old. One of the things that happened to me, I should say, that was a big deal was my father died of cancer when I was 17, and that really put a chink in my thing with God. Um, I had a very loose religious upbringing, and I really felt that God, um, you know, I, I mean, I, I, Hollywood, I believed all the movies. Good things happen to good people, bad things happen to bad people. If you pray hard enough, God will come through because you're a good person. And all that stuff. And I prayed really hard. My dad wouldn't die, and he died anyway on Christmas morning, no less, which I thought was really crappy on God's part, timing-wise. So, I mean, I just slammed the door on God, and I went headfirst into food, other substances, and guys, okay? Because I had to replace my daddy with a new daddy. And I actually found some guy who was really nice. But what I found was, after a while, love didn't fix it. I had a hole in my gut that nothing could fill. 
And I started going to churches. I've been dunked. I've been prayed over. And it fixed it for a little while. And then the hole came back. And uh, I remember just thinking, well, the hell with God, you know? I mean, this isn't working. What's next? You know, I was always for the what's next. And I, too, I was, I've heard my story all weekend. I, too, went to Schick and paid them a lot of money to electroshock my arm and try and convince me I don't look certain foods. And they just didn't have a high enough voltage. <laughs> and... And they said, well, give us a list of things you don't want to eat anymore. And I did. And they said, well, that's everything. And I thought, yes. You know, so that was a big bust. And uh, I'd been to several commercial weight loss programs. I lost my weight once. And that's all this led up to Overeaters Anonymous because that's when I found out it's an inside job. The outsides looked normal. The insides were absolutely crazy. And I discovered I didn't know what to do with a thin body. I didn't know what to do with my sexuality. I didn't know what to do with anything. And I started eating. I, you know, we get to go wait, what, 24, 48 hours? And then I, no kidding, started eating back up again. So um, what got me to Overeaters Anonymous was repeated experiences of this, repeated experiences of public and private humiliation. Uh, repeated experiences of going out to a club when I'm thin-ish, and then um, somebody takes my phone number. If you didn't call within 22 to 24 hours, you were not dating me because I would be up 20 pounds by two weeks, and I'm not seeing you now. So I would get jobs in the summer thin. By the time summer was over, they were all scratching their heads going, what happened to her? You know, I'm one of those people that drove around with a cake in the passenger side and ate handfuls of it between stoplights. I'm one of those people that walks around with a one-pound bag of M&Ms in my purse for quick energy value. I'm one of those people that keeps cakes in their closet, cookie dough under their bed, and has learned how to talk with a completely full mouth. Okay? I'm one of those people that digs food out of the garbage can and eats it, even though I swore I wouldn't, even though I swore I was done. That's, I'm one of those people. So um, I get to Overeaters Anonymous the first time because I'd been to Africa, gotten dysentery, and dysentery will work for a little while. <laughs> so I lost my weight. I knew it was only a matter of time, so I went to OA, OA, and I got myself a sponsor, and I got the food plan, and so I'm eating the food plan. This is when I discovered how bad it is to eat with people who drink because they don't give a crap when dinner is. <laughs> now, I've had four ounces of chicken, a little baggie of warm carrots, and a baggie of warm grapes at noon. It's 8 o'clock, and we haven't eaten yet. So I grab the hostess by the lapels and say, can I help you put out the dinner? You know, and, oh, okay. <laughs> so I ate three abstinent dinners in a row. And then I came back to get my dish because it was a potluck. And I figured I should get some food for the road. Now, it's about mm, midnight, 1 in the morning. I'm in a strange person's house that I really don't know, taking food from their refrigerator while their little dog is growling at me. <laughs> and I'm just thinking, shut up, you know? So I get some cheese. It's protein. Oh, it's on my food plan for the road. And then the next day, I call somebody, and I go, um, did I break my abstinence last night? I didn't have sugar. And she said, I think you did. And I said, thanks, that's all I wanted to know. And I promptly went to the grocery store. I left over here synonymous. And I put 72 pounds back on over the summer. 
And then uh, the next time I came in, I too was wearing drawstring painter's pants. Um, I don't bathe regularly when I'm eating compulsively. I don't care. I don't care. I'm uh, not taking off makeup. I just keep adding layers, like <laughs> Queen Elizabeth. And um, my dirty hair is pushed up under a uh, beret because I'm an artist, so I look artsy. What I, I don't even, I look like something probably from a David Lynch movie is what I look like. But anyway, um, what I remember is this. The same people that were there last year were here again. I thought, they're still here. And I remember seeing tears drop on the tops of my shoes. I couldn't look up. And I remember thinking, this is it. I've sunk to Overeaters Anonymous. <laughs> it's not even a cute name. There's nothing fun about this. In fact, it has implications of being a lot like something on Skid Row. And there's these steps that make no sense. All I was grateful for is you didn't weigh me in. And, of course, they do the prevent. Hi, Julie. And you're just like, oh, God. And then you prayed at the end, which really bothered me a lot. But I came back. Why? Because while I was sitting in the OA meeting, I was, did you already flip a time for me? And I just, need, okay. While I was sitting in the OA meeting, I was thinking, okay, what haven't I tried? This is what I did with every weight loss program. Okay, if this doesn't work, I can go to, and I couldn't think of anything. Johnny, Jenny Craig was still in Australia. You know, there, you know, there was no Dr. Rader eating disorder units. It's like, I knew Dream Away wouldn't work. I saw, I'd heard of people getting their jaws wired shut and then breaking out their teeth and uh, doing chocolate shakes through straws. And I thought, well, that's not going to work. Well, I hope this works, because if it does not, I know what else to do. And people started talking about that this was the last house on the block. And I thought, they're right. And I don't know what I'm going to do if this doesn't work. And I kept coming back, and I didn't necessarily like you. I didn't like that you hugged me. In my family, we didn't hug. We hugged I saw my father hug his brothers at their mother's funeral, period. That was it. We didn't hug in my family. Oh, we loved each other, but we didn't hug. And so it was like really creepy in the beginning. But, you know, hell, I, I remember sitting there thinking, I wouldn't mind if you took off my right arm, if I could stay thin. I would give up a limb, an arm and a leg maybe even, anything. I have never worked at anything so hard and been such a miserable failure as weight loss. And, um, but I heard people sound like me. And I would see people come in, and they would hold up their pants or their dress or their belt, and they would be a normal weight. And I'd think, how can that be? And they'd show pictures. That's why I bring pictures. This is what I used to be like. This is what I'm like now. And I thought, but what impressed me was they didn't say this week. They said, for five years, for eight years, for 13 years. I didn't know anybody that kept their weight off, okay? So I come in, I get a food plan, I get a sponsor, and by God, I call in my food every day. They said, go to three meetings a week. I went to three meetings a week. Uh, stand by the literature table. I stood by the literature table. I like putting away chairs because you can throw them. Um, <laughs> and I was doing okay. In fact, I was losing weight. And the way I took the steps was like this. I admit I'm fat. No, one. Two, there's a God. Okay. Three, 
I'm going to have to turn my life and will over to him, and I'm happy to do that as long as no one's watching and nobody knows about it. (laughs) And so I made a decision to turn my life and will over to the care of God. And what happened to me was that happens to some of us is when we quit eating, feelings come up. My feelings were rage. I mean, I'd been angry for a long time and never been allowed to feel it, taught not to feel it, don't feel it, you're not lovable if you feel it, and I couldn't help it. it. I was like a pot on boil, and it was coming up. And one of the things I was angry at was God. So I took my will and life back, and I said, I will turn it over to a food plan and a food scale. And that's what I did, and I went to an OA retreat. Now, by this time, I'd been abstaining a year and a half, and I was 98 pounds. I had quit having a period. My hair was falling out. I couldn't go up a flight of stairs. But don't talk to me about being too thin. I'm thin for the first time in my life. Get out of my face. And I went to an OE retreat. I found out they do lock up the food between meals. And I didn't have a food scale. And I had no effective mental defense against that first convulsive bite that the book talks about. We have to trust God, clean house, and work with others. I was only not trusting God and not cleaning house. I mean, the four, it's, they're in English, but I didn't understand the four-step. And nobody in my group had done a four-step. So, And uh, I began compulsively overeating in an OA retreat. But when you go from 98 to 110, most people are just happy. They were happy I wasn't going to die. I mean, I looked terrible, but I thought I looked good. And, uh, but I didn't stop there. And I remember going to a meeting and being miserable, and I remember saying out loud, I'm miserable eating, I'm miserable not eating, I might as well eat. And what I did is I went and I got a binge for protein, and I said, I'm going to eat this, and tomorrow I'll go right back on. Because I heard other people say, but I got right back on. What I don't hear them say is, and I've stayed right back on. But I didn't hear that part. So what I did was I went out and started binging, and I put on 16 pounds in six days. And went. And, and in this group, there's not even a gasp. It's like, yes. <laughs> 16 pounds. I mean, you can, you can say that anywhere else, and people go, oh. Here it's like, that all, sweetheart? <laughs> Sorry, that's it. 16 pounds. I was trying hard. 16 pounds in six days, 98 to 200 in less than three months. There we are. Thank you. And this is the only place where you can kind of feel good that you were so bad. Anyway, uh, anyway, uh, so, you know, uh, June, July, and August in Southern California, I'm working at an amusement park where the uniforms only go up to 12. So I'm having to leave the back unzipped and wear a black sweater in summer, weighing this weight. So what happened was, is for the next two and a half years, I tried to get abstinent. My first sponsor after that break was a um, person six months out of a mental unit, and we were in good shape together. (laughs) That woman saved my life because she let me spend Thanksgiving Day with her. They only, if you're worried about Thanksgiving, eat directly across from your sponsor. (laughs) Good chance you won't eat right then. And I didn't that day. But I'll tell you, the Twilight Zone Marathon was on, and boy, was I right there. So uh, for the next two and a half years, I would binge and abstain, binge and abstain, binge and abstain, because I didn't really thoroughly get the first step. What did I do after a year and a half of abstinence? The only thing I could say was, I'm powerless over food. That's a big deal. And if all it took was two and a half years to get that, I think I got off light. 
So, and that doesn't mean I didn't work the rest of the steps. I mean, I kept eating thinking, you know, I don't know what I was thinking. But my last binge was a pound of butter and a loaf of bread. And, uh, I mean, I would do things like drive down. I like telling this story. I'll just say it real fast. I, I, driving a stick shift, driving down the freeway in Southern California, in the rain, hydroplaning. And I'm putting cream cheese on a bagel <laughs> with a stick shift in the rain. Because I had to finish eating before I picked up my husband. So um, my sponsor hung in there with me. She'd say, call me when you don't want to eat. She didn't say, don't ever call me again. And I did what she did because I wanted what she had. I ate the way she ate. I went to the meeting she went to. I did what she told me to do, mostly to prove that she was full of shit. (laughs) But I did it. And, you know, they'll tell you stuff like, you know, you say, I've got a real problem. And they go, well, you should go to a meeting. And I think, what good will that do? I want to stay home and think about this and figure it out. And so I did what she said, and I got what she got. At that time, she had five years of abstinence and an 80-pound weight loss. She had what I wanted. And this has not been a tip throw through the tulips. Thank you. Um, But here's what I do. This is what I did when I started, and this is what I do now. Um, I go to an average of... Four meetings a week, not all of them away, because if you're lucky enough to have one disease, with any luck at all, you can have half a dozen. So I've got three. I married into one. Um, but I've, seriously, um, I, uh, I go to Overuse Anonymous, and I go to step studies and book studies because I want to hear the program of Overuse Anonymous clearly. Okay? I think speaker meetings are great, but I don't believe they'll keep you abstinent. My opinion. All this is my opinion. You disagree with it, don't like it, please feel free to disagree and don't like it. Just don't tell me about it. (laughs) Okay, tell your sponsor. That's what sponsors are for. And here's the good thing to know, and I'm going to use a bad word here. Be grateful for the assholes in your life, the ones especially you meet in meetings, because they they are the sand in your oyster that will create a pearl. I don't know about you, but I don't call my sponsor over people I like. I don't call my sponsor and pray to God over people who make me happy. I work steps, 10 steps. I I pray to God for them. Those people get me to work a program. So if you have people that are irritating you, thank God for them. So what's happened to me as a result of of working the 12 steps, having a sponsor, I still have a sponsor, I still call my sponsor, I am a sponsor, and I think that that's... What happened to the one minute? Okay, thank you. I will finish, I'll finish my sentence. Okay. Um, I weigh and measure my food because I have a broken eyeball. And I will practice spiritual discipline and just say... This is the third step prayer I say, which is I've uh, stolen from Narcotics Anonymous. Higher power, God, keep me abstinent today. Take my life and my will. Guide me in my recovery. Teach me how to live. And a a day at a time, this program, you people, and a higher power have done exactly that. Thank you.
Wow, what a way to end our, what a great speaker to end our whole weekend on. Thank you again. It was fabulous. Um, I want to thank all of you who read, acted as timers, moderators, and who spoke throughout the convention, as well as those who volunteered for all the service opportunities we had. Your assistance has made this weekend a fabulous success, and we couldn't have done it without you. I want to introduce you finally to the, individually to the 2012 convention committee. As I say your name, please come up to the front, along the front.